just say to you, there's a, there's a slight change in the title of our sermon today. If you uh, look at your notes or if you are, uh, have it on your computer screen at home, you'll see it says the name, or excuse me, it says a name, a mark, and a mission, and it should read the name, the mark, and the mission. Let us pray. O God and our Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our nearest kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. We have an ongoing series on the ten words, or as commonly known, the Ten Commandments. Because when we came to the end of the church calendar that represented and focused on the life of Christ, we found ourselves those last two Sundays at the Ascension and then Pentecost. At the Ascension, we see that Jesus gives the Great Commission, which is the renewed and set to right use of the the dominion mandate to be fruitful, multiply, and take dominion which is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Every man, woman, and child in this room and across the world has been created for this very task of being fruitful, multiplying, and taking dominion. We see that on the day of ascension in Matthew 28, these words, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And in case you don't know what that is, that is all dominion has been given to Jesus. And because all dominion has been given to Jesus, he says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That is, be fruitful and multiply. And of course, what does this look like? What actions do we take? He goes on, that is Jesus, telling us that as we make these disciples, that we should be baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here's where it brings us to the purpose of our series, verse 20, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded to you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So in these things, to take dominion, to be fruitful and multiply, to make disciples of all the nations, he tells us several things about that. One, that you go and as you do this, you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that we should be teaching them all that he has commanded. And then he gives us this final statement that assures us in his complete dominion of all things and that should give us strength for doing this task, and that is, I am with you even to the end of the age. And that's not like, oh, the end of your age. This is the end of all time. When everything in this world comes to an end and heaven descends and we are reconciled, heaven and earth, he's with us all, his people, the people of God, to complete this task of discipling the nations, we should be assured and draw great strength and comfort from this. And of course, following this, Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. And that is the final declaration of Jesus as king over the cosmos. That's everything that is created and 
all the nations. And of course, I know we have a lot of visitors today, but I want to keep emphasizing this for the people that are here every week. Why do I call it the ten words? Why do I think we all ought to consider it the ten words? It is because God himself, in Exodus chapter 20, is the one speaking. Exodus 20 verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words. It didn't say God spoke all these commandments. You see, because when we look at it as commandments, we have a tendency to just make a list and move on. These are the words of God for life. It is what gives us direction. But you know, this is not just commands. In these ten words, there are imperatives, declarations, warnings, and praise God Almighty, promises. He goes on, and God makes this very clear. It isn't just an abstract person of God speaking these things. No, He gives us His personal name, Yahweh. God's personal name, Yahweh, appears eight times. We do not serve a non-personal entity. We serve the living triune God who loves one another and teaches us how to love and how to be together in community by observing the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And His name is Yahweh. We must remember that we have a personal relationship with Yahweh our God. Christianity is not simply steps to make and boxes to check. Christianity is about real people in relationship with the living triune God. In the first word, we came to realize that we are not to bring any God before the face of the living triune God. That we should not have anything in our lives that direct the paths of how we live and worship that is not from the word of God. The second word, it gives us directions and it prohibits us from making for ourselves idols. When we make our own idols, we are attempting to displace Jesus as our only mediator to God. These idols could be anything but they certainly are not limited to our own works towards salvation or even our excuses that we expect God to accept our sin and our weak efforts of serving Him in all areas of our lives. So that brings us today to the third word. Let us read the third word together. Exodus chapter 20 beginning in verse 7. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who makes his name in vain. You know, when we were children, we generally ask, what is the minimum that I must do to obey my teachers, my parents, and even God? We all remember that, right? Children, look up here. Children, are you listening? It isn't just about doing the very least you can do to be obedient to God and to your parents and to your teachers, but to joyfully try to understand what God and your parents are asking of you and to do it. You know what we do? We try to do this. We try to look at the top line intent of a command or direction so that we can say, 
we have followed the law. And we do this usually knowing that we are trying to skirt the real point. Can we be honest about that? When we are looking at that minimalist view of things, we deep down in our hearts actually know that we're sort of kind of trying to figure out, well, I, I can say I'm doing it, but I'm just going to try to move a little bit to the side and not put my full effort and heart into it. Now, one of the ways that we can slip into this is we use the current ordinary way that we look and evaluate things by making categories and lists. Now, I'm not against categories and lists. We need those, right? I mean, after all, what, what is a sermon outline, right? What is it when I make my plan for the day? What is my prayer list? It's a list. How do I organize that list? By categories, right? So I am not simply with that, but sometimes when we, uh, or against that, sometimes we, we are applying categories and lists to try to squeeze down to the very least that I have to do in order to accomplish something. We've got to be careful to make sure that the categories and lists are not the place where things begin and end. It is a place to begin, but it is not the place to end. We serve the God of story. There is a narrative in God's story of us. This story unfolds both in the general historical path begun in Scripture and continues this day at the personal level for every person in mankind. This narrative of story teaches us what we are created for, what we are here for. The, in the third word, we are instructed by the very words of Yahweh our God, but it is in the midst of the story that God is telling us. When we consider the third word, we can make categories and lists as to what this word means and what the specific things are that we should not do. Now, I'm about to quote something here, and I ordinarily use all scripture, but I think sometimes it's important to say, okay, here's something else to consider, right? Now, I, I am a, uh, a guy who, who likes confessions and creeds. I see them as helpful, but they are not preeminent over scripture. And at the same time, I can support it and also say, well, it can help us, if we, and it can also hinder us if we are leaning just to the list of the confession. Consider question 112 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism that says, What is required in the third commandment? And the answer is, the third commandment requires that the name of God, His titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, his works, and whatsoever else there is whereby he makes himself known, be holy and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing, by a holy profession and answerable conversion to the glory of God and to the good of ourselves and others. Now, the reality is we could take that right there. That's a pretty lengthy list. There's a lot packed in there. And we could, we could do weeks and weeks of all the things laid out there. 
But don't get caught up in simply what it seems to do in terms of making the list. In question 113, it says this, What are the sins forbidden in the third commandment? And the answer is this, The sins forbidden in the third commandment are the not using of God's name as is required, and the, the abuse of it in an ignorant, vain, and irreverent, profane, superstitious, or wicked mentioning, or otherwise using his titles, attributes, ordinances, or works by blasphemy, perjury, all sinful cursing, oaths, vows, and lots. When we consider these organized thoughts and lists, we can become caught up in just our verbal use of God's name. Seeing it as a simple prohibition of using God's name as a common curse word or even in an empty or blasphemous way. The third word does certainly include the careless or even intentional misuse of God's name. Many of us, though, are no longer taking the childlike, immature view of what's the least I have to do anymore. But we all may be lacking in the fullness of the intent of the third word. Here today, as we consider the third word, we want to consider it by way of the greater narrative of God's Word. Again, to be clear, I'm not simply dismissing the catechism. However, the Scriptures teach us a fuller application of taking the Lord's name in vain. And actually, the catechism does catch this, and it says it well. In the line where it says, And whatsoever else there is whereby he that is God makes himself known, is the context we're going to be following. Again, looking at Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7, it says this, You shall not take. That word take right there in Hebrew is nasaw. That is to bear, to lift up, to carry. So we shall lift up and carry the name of Yahweh. We shall not do it in a way that Yahweh our God Okay, you shall not lift up or bear or carry the name of Yahweh your God in a vain. And this word vain here means emptiness, nothingness. This word vanity that we see that, that vain comes from in the Hebrew means vaporous. You can't grasp vapor. And we are being told that we are to carry the name of Yahweh our God, the personal, our personal God, in a way that is not empty. Or useless. This taking of the name is lifting up, carrying the name of God. It certainly can be understood as bearing the mark of God on God's people. And of course we know that in the Old Testament the mark was circumcision. Today for Christians the mark is baptism. We must be concerned with taking the mark, that is God's name, and the way in which we lift it up and carry it among the people that God has placed in our lives. We must be careful not to become blind to God's purpose in calling us out of the bondage of sin. We're going to be looking just briefly in Romans chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 17. But I want us to understand a little bit about Romans so we get a grasp of what this word of God is teaching us. 
One of the key sins of Israel, the real stumbling block for Israel was their pride. Corrupted pride in being the people of God. They thought that they were special. God called them out because they were special. God gave them the oracles and the word of God because they were special. And, they, and God laid out, here are my laws, here are my ordinance, here are my statutes. And what did they do? Well, we're the special people of God. And we're going to create all these extra rules, all these extra laws, down to the very detail. And they made all these laws in their prideful way, all these regulations in their prideful way, as the thing that they felt made them special. They took it from God being merciful and pulling them out of the bondage of Egypt, forgiving their sins and establishing them in love. And what do they do? Oh, I'm so good. God's given me all these things. And now I'm going to go out and I'm going to create all these rules. And by the way, I'm going to do these rules so that they make me look so different and I'm going to be separated from all the rest of the world. You know, Paul writes the epistles of Romans to the church in Rome. And I'm going to make another modern reference here. That he, Again, he writes this to the church in Rome as the shocking message to the Judaizers in the church. When they hear Romans 1, that is the Judaizers, those that are proud and puffed up, and they read Romans 1 and they hear it, and God lists out the sins, and they look at all how God has turned those terrible sinners over to, they're like, yeah, look at those guys. We see in verse, we see that, that they, they were just rejoicing. Look at how terrible and wicked those people are that, that uh, Paul is talking about in Romans 1. And it says this in verse 28 of Romans 1, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do all those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do they do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. The Judaizers, the prideful, those that say, I'm the special person of God, they jump up and say, yes, yes, God is judging those wicked unbelievers. But Paul, in chapters 2 and 3, stops and says, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you. Romans chapter 2 and verse 17, it says this, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and you rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve of the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, and a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes having the form of knowledge 
and truth in the law. When Paul uses the distinction of Jew, he's talking about those who were deriving their pride of life, their whole view of the world, and we're the special people of God. We have it all tied up together. And you know what? We're the ones with all the vision and all the truth and all the knowledge. So much so that that we can lead the blind. We have the light. Everyone else is merely babes to us. There is no humility for those who have everything figured out. If they are the keeper of all truth, I would admonish and caution everyone in this room and listening elsewhere to be careful. We privately say we are Calvinists, Pado-Baptists, not only all that, but we're post-mill. We've got the world figured out. We need to be careful. We can become like in the story that Jesus tells in Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed and thus with himself said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this lowly tax collector right here. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. In verse 13, and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to the heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. The failure of Israel was that they believed that they were the special people who were given the things of God and that they were so special that they fell into the common temptation to use the things that God has given his people as the very same thing to separate themselves both from fellow believers and also unbelievers. Back to Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, it says this, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through the breaking of the law? Verse 24, this is the scary part for the name of god is blasphemed among the gentiles because of you as it is written now that phrase as it is written references us that this is a quote from the old testament this is from malachi this is where god indicts the people of israel especially the priests and the levites god accuses the priests in substituting the offerings that is using a different mediator, committing adultery with women who are not the wives of their youth, and finally stealing from God himself by not bringing the tithes and offerings into God's house. When they were rejecting bringing these tithes and offerings, they were rejecting that what God had given them, the very gifts that God had given them, they were hoarding them. The prophet Malachi goes on 
in chapter 3, verse 10, to indict the whole nation of Israel. He starts with the leadership. He starts with the pastors. He starts with the elders and the deacons. And then he says, you know what? It's all over all of you. This is important. God's concern is not just simply the frontline sins of robbery, idolatry, and adultery, but the much greater implication that God has blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the behavior of Israel, who are the very priests to the nations. Romans chapter 2, verse 25 declares these Judaizers, those that were puffed up in the law and their works and all the extra things that made them distinct and separated them from engaging the unbeliever, says in verse 25 of chapter 2 of Romans, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep, that is, if you practice and exercise to be busy to carry on the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. In the Old Testament, the mark that was received by Israel was circumcision. Paul is making the point that you can have the mark of God, but unless you practice the ways of God, the mark is useless and causes others to blaspheme his name. Paul goes on to point out that the person who believes, that is the person who has faith in what God's word says, will demonstrate it by his actions coming from his heart. Verse 26 of Romans chapter 2 says, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you even with your written code, that is the extra laws that they've written up, and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision that is of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter. That is all the extra things that we make it out to be. Whose praise is not from men, but from God. It is important to note that if we recall the ministry of Jesus, he was constantly calling the priests and the Pharisees and the people of Israel to stop their hypocrisy. They were always adding to the law so that they might continue to cut themselves off from the Gentiles. They disregarded God's directive to serve the nations by giving the truth of God to the peoples of the world. They took from God that which God had given them, and instead of being fruitful and multiplying the gifts of God's word and worship in the nations, they did as the servant who was given the talent, and instead of making it grow and working it, he took it home and he buried it. Sadly, they built their own elaborate rituals to say that we are the people of God. And so, because of that, we must push the Gentiles, the unbelievers, away because they will contaminate us. Even worse, Israel goes on to blatantly disobey God's word that he spoke to them, thus causing those very same Gentiles and unbelievers to blaspheme his name. People of God, they had a mission and we have a mission. God's purpose has always been that his chosen people, first Israel and then the church, are the priests to the world. 
We make intercession for the nations of the world and lift up the name of God that he is glorified. This is the way to fruitfulness in mankind and thus fulfilling the total dominion of the cosmos. Galatians chapter 3 verse 8 tells us this, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel of Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So at the very beginning of the establishment of Israel, God makes the promise that all of the world, all the nations will be blessed by the family of God. When God goes later and he calls the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of the bondage of slavery, right before you get to chapter 20, you have what? Chapter 19. In 19 verse 6 of Exodus, it says this, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. This is God telling Moses, You and all of these people I've called out are to be the priests to the nations. In Numbers chapter 29, God gives the instructions to the people of Israel for the Feast of Tabernacles. And in his instructions, he has them sacrifice 70 bulls. And that is for the intercession of the nations, the 70 nations. God reminded Israel throughout the Old Testament by the prophets to be the priests of the nations. As Christians, this of course continues with the Great Commission. Remember again what it says? And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you to do. And lo, I am with you to the very end of the age. He says all these things to us. And we have been given the mark of God. We have been marked by God. Today's lectionary reading reminded us in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, In him you were also circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, by the putting off of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in what? Baptism. In which you were also raised with him through the faith in the working of God who raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead. People of God, we carry the mark of God daily. We have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Wherever we go, whatever we do, to whomever we speak, we are lifting up the name of our God. Considering this mark further, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, For, for by one Spirit we were what? All baptized into one body. Whether Look at this distinction. Jews or Greeks, those who thought they were the special people of God, hey, listen, don't reject Jesus. And the Greeks, by the way, when Paul uses these distinctions, he has three distinctions. He has Jews, those are the people that are all caught up in the law and and cutting themselves off. The Greeks, those are the nations that are supposed to be protecting Israel so that they can be the priests of the nations. And then the Gentiles, that's everyone else. And here he says, all of us. Those who are protecting the church and those who are the church, we've all been baptized into one body, whether slaves or free, and have been made to drink into one spirit. The spirit at work is at work in our baptism. We don't simply rest on our baptism, 
But by faith given to us by God, we believe, believe and live accordingly to the fact that his mark is on us. God instructs us in Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through what? The washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of the work of the Spirit, the mark is not one with ink but rather a new heart given to us by God. One final thought on how we carry the mark of our baptism and its missional implication. Paul in his second letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, you are an epistle written in our hearts, known and read by what? All men. Verse 3, hear this now, people. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, the heart. People of God, you and I, the whole church, we're an epistle. We are the letter. We are God's letter to the world. You who have been baptized carry the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yahweh, your God. Your personal God. Please listen carefully. When you speak and act, do the people around you have cause to blaspheme God's name? His name that you carry? We are called to disciples of the nations. It starts right here with God's people. So that we may give what God has given us. God has given you salvation. But not salvation so that, whew, I don't have to go to hell. I get to go to heaven. It's not to heaven. It's for the mission he's given us. God has given all of us so much. The forgiveness of our sins. Do we carry God's name in a way that is a good letter to the world? Or are we carrying the name of God in such a way that he has blasphemed? When we reflect on how we carry God's name, are we giving cause to our spouses to blaspheme God? Children, are you... Children, look at me. I know we're, we're coming to the end here, but bear with me. Children, listen. Do you teach your little brothers and sisters to honor God? Or by your actions, are you teaching them, by your words, are you teaching them to hate God? Parents. Older children to your parents. Adult children to your parents. What message, what letter are you giving them? Are, they, are you giving them cause to blaspheme the name of God? This applies to all of us. I must say, when I hear this, I feel indicted. What about our coworkers? What about our neighbors? 
Are we pridefully keeping what God has taught us? Are we taking the oracles of God to the nations? Do you turn your Christian life into a merit badge and drive others away to those in or out of the church? We must consider God's third word and carry God's name as Jesus told us in Matthew 5.16. Let your light shine so before men that they may see your good works. For what end? That they may glorify your Father in heaven. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you are at work in our world, in our lives, and in our time. We thank you, Lord, that the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of our Lord, Jesus Christ. May we not cause unbelievers to blaspheme your name. Please help us, we pray, to shine your light in the good works you have given us to do in carrying your name, that all the nations will glorify you. In your son's name, Jesus. Amen.